This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. everyone and welcome to another episode of Insight. I'm Ali and with me as per usual is Charlie. How are you? I'm good. I am enjoying a really nice weekend we have going on here in Kansas City which is super nice. How are you? I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of glad this summer is almost behind me. It's been the most humid, most disgusting summer I think I've ever experienced. And you are sitting there in a jumper. It's actually my bathrobe. I have, I am fully dressed with a bathrobe on because while it's been really nice outside in my basement at night, it's not, not so nice. Now, the last three weeks, we have covered our fair share of the heavy narcissistic psychopaths. This week, I had been considering for a while doing the smiley faced murders. It was high on my list to cover when we first started the podcast, but that's not what we're doing today. Thinking sideways, one of their earlier episodes were on the Smiley Faced Murders, so you can download and listen to that one after this one if you want to know more about that. But just briefly, when I talk about the Smiley Faced Murders, the theory is that in a particular area in the United States, otherwise healthy, mostly college-age men are found dead in bodies of water. And close to where their bodies are found, the investigation, it's noted there is a graffiti in the form of a smiley face. And there are two former detectives who are kind of pushing this theory. Now, I don't know if I really believe these cases are all linked. There is just some things that don't fit quite right with me. I mean, just for one example, how many smiley face graffiti is out there without a dead body nearby? I'll give you the answer. There is a lot. I think I read there is a smiley face graffiti every five miles or something. I know that I passed two on my three-mile walk. That's smiley face graffiti, not dead bodies. So smiley face graffiti isn't all that rare. And when you consider there is a lot of deaths that happen in water, when you try to pair that with smiley face graffiti, I don't think it's much more than a coincidence that it matches up. Brian Schaefer, who was a missing person, is one case I hear mentioned as a potential smiley face victim, despite the fact that his body hasn't been found and therefore no smiley face. All the other factors are there though. So who knows, we may talk a bit more about the smiley face murder theory when we cover Brian. Anyway, where am I going with this? Not long ago, it's probably been a couple of months now, but some people in our Facebook group were talking about significant occurrences of male drownings in bodies of water. I think it was in Bath in England, which we will touch on a bit later. But the conversation came around to the deaths in the Manchester canals and that it might be done by someone named the Pusher, with him being a potential serial killer. And this is a somewhat similar story to the smiley-faced murders, in that they are young, college-aged men who are found drowned. 
but instead they happened in and around the Manchester Canals. So that's our case this week, the Manchester Canals Pusher. So thank you to Emma, Rosie, Sincerity, Rihanna and Katrina for a bit of insight, no pun intended, into the canal system and their layouts. Now neither Charlie or I had heard about this case before and being that we like the obscure type cases, this is something that we're interested in looking more into. So let's go. Basically, the theory that the pusher is behind a number of drownings in the Manchester area in the United Kingdom. And the number of drownings we are talking about are a point of contention here. 61, I think, is the lowest number reported, but I've seen the numbers go all the way up to 90. And essentially, what is being said is that these, I'll call them murders for the sake of the serial killer theory at the moment, But these murders happen in a span from 2008 to 2014 or 2015. Again, that depends on the source as well. You'll also find drownings that happened before this and happened after this that will be attributed to the pusher. And we'll talk about one of those drownings that happened before 2008 today that is attributed to the pusher. So the time period isn't an exact science. As part of my research, I did try to find a definitive list of potential victims' names, but there doesn't seem to be one. I found a couple of lists with 10, 12, 20 victims, but not a complete list with, say, 60-plus victims. Basically, all of this got started as something of an urban legend, kind of an in-joke among the locals in Manchester. And there was a hashtag on Twitter, and we all know how those can take off. But the majority of the people didn't take it seriously. And that is until a tabloid newspaper in the UK, the Daily Star, picked up the story in January of last year. They used a Freedom of Information Act request to access the police reports, and they found the numbers allegedly got up to 60. Then again, they also have reported numbers as high as 85. Now, let's be clear here. These larger numbers aren't just for the city of Manchester, which is about the size of Kansas City, but the greater Manchester area, which is a population of 2.8 million people. And this is where the serial killer angle really starts taking off. As I said, the Daily Star is a tabloid paper. And I will say something about the UK that they do better than anyone in the world, and it is their tabloid newspapers both in sheer volume and entertainment value. So major props to them on that. But even the best tabloid paper is still a tabloid paper and needs some backing from someone with, I don't know, how do I put this delicately, you know, credibility. So let's enter Professor Craig Jackson, who's an academic at Birmingham University. He argues that it is unlikely that so many deaths would be the result of suicide or accidental drownings, and there must be a connection between some or all of these deaths. And the connection would be a serial killer. The story was then picked up by more trusted newspapers, and it started getting some worldwide attention. Professor Jackson argued that the number of bodies that are recovered, almost one person a month if we go with the higher estimates, is much higher than for similar cities with bars and clubs near large stretches of water, like London, Nottingham, or Birmingham, for example. 
I've not seen if he's taken into account comparable conditions, such as safety fences along these waterways and the lighting available at these waterways. But, you know, I don't, I don't know how much he took in, how many variables he took into account here. On the police front, their official line is they don't believe the pusher exists. They believe that a number of deaths were due to alcohol, while others were cases of suicide. One of the head detectives in the investigation, Detective Inspector Pete Marsh of the Greater Manchester Police, he even goes as far as to say that in some of the cases involving older men, they were clear-cut suicides because their belongings were left on the side of the canal. Detective Inspector Marsh said that there was an occasion, I think he said one, but it could have been several. But anyway, on at least one occasion, someone had been pushed in and there was someone that they brought in for questioning, so they had been caught. So we do know we have specific instances where someone was pushed into the water. But all in all, for the majority, there was no evidence of foul play being involved and they weren't investigating the likelihood of a serial killer. Is this something they were just saying to prevent public panic? I don't know. I've also seen some comments on Reddit and the like that this is just lazy policing. Is it though? Again, I'm not sure. We'll have to talk about that a bit more in theories. There is an author who has written on psychopathy named Thomas Sheridan. He's based in Northern Ireland, and he became interested in the pusher case. He believes that a serial killer is targeting gay men in the Manchester nightclub slash bar scene. Now, the killer, according to Sheridan, is killing men he believes are gay because he is gay and is harboring guilt over that. Before we get too much further into this, I looked into Thomas Sheridan's credentials. He writes books on psychopathy, so I assumed I would find some kind of background in neuroscience, in psychology, but... No specialty field or degrees are listed anywhere, even on his official biography on his own website. It only refers to him having, you know, been researching the psychopath. Yeah. I'm the last one to say that someone cannot achieve a high level of self-study, since this podcast is fueled by Allie's and my inner autodidacts. But I would feel remiss if I didn't mention that Sheridan's credentials aren't entirely clear. Sheridan was in Manchester to investigate the pusher ahead of a conference on psychopathy, and he reported being followed by a tall man wearing a hood and said the isolation of the area was very eerie. He made a short film on this topic that you can find on YouTube. It's called Blind Spot, a Serial Killer in Manchester. I had a conversation with you earlier, Charlie, and I'm going to say right off the bat, This all sounds like someone trying to get publicity. I mean, why even bring up a guy in the hood? Is he claiming that the murderer was coming after him? But why would that happen? There really needs to be something more, something else that happened for me to believe that someone was following him. I mean, let's just say it was me and someone was just walking behind me. I wouldn't necessarily think they were following me solely based on that. There is a YouTube video that I will put in the show notes and possibly in our Facebook group as well, but it shows the Manchester Canal area at night and you'd be surprised at just how many people are walking around there at night in the complete darkness. 
Yeah, this hooded person who wearing a hood could just mean he was wearing a hoodie. This person, as far as I understand, didn't approach him, didn't yell at him, didn't attempt to push him. He was just walking walking behind him. And so, yeah, like you, I... I don't find this entirely persuasive. And in his YouTube video, he really doesn't bring any more information than what's already out there by other people. He's very dismissive of any other theory besides that of the serial killer. I really don't get where he's coming from at all. As I said, unless he may be writing a book or about to release a book and trying to drum up some publicity. We've seen this before, people in our research, people who are inserting themselves into cases that they have no actual knowledge of. When we're talking about the Manchester canals, we're mainly talking about the ship canals, but this is just a small part of what makes up what is known as the Manchester canals. There's about 36 miles in length of canals, and they're defined as an inland waterway that starts in Liverpool and then goes through Cheshire, Lancashire, before ending up in Manchester. And I didn't watch my BBC How to Pronounce Cities in the UK, so I apologize if I said any of those incorrectly. What we're talking about here isn't just Manchester. We're talking about a fairly large area. So even as we say Manchester Canal Pusher, we're being too narrow. We're talking about this whole greater Manchester area, and we should probably call the pusher, if he exists, the greater Manchester Canal pusher, because people have been found in neighboring towns. Manchester itself has a population of half a million people, but like I said before, we're talking 2.8 million people. Let's set the scene a bit, and by setting the scene, I mean tell you what I saw on a documentary or what listeners have told us when we reached out for help because neither of us have actually been to Manchester to set the scene ourselves. And this is one of the limits we have when we cover cases that aren't in Australia or the United States. These canals run through a city area and there are different kinds of offset smaller canals coming off the main canal. They also run under the city with the roads running over it. From from what you see of the walkways along the canal in a Channel 4 documentary on this topic that we both watched, they don't look particularly safe. A lot of them don't have any fencing, handrails, anything to prevent people possibly coming home from a night out at the bar from just falling in. If we're going to go with the pusher theory, there isn't anything to stop you from going into the water with a good shove. Most of the rails you see are barely waist high. In defense of the Manchester Councils, higher fences were put in trouble spots last year, so you wouldn't be able to just fall over into the canal in these areas. You would have to climb up on the fencing or maybe be lifted over it. And we will talk about what allegedly happened to one of the supposed victims in this vein, as we like to say on the show. We'll get to that later. One of our listeners told us that there can be a pretty great distance from where you would fall from and where the water starts. So if you did fall in, you couldn't just reach up to the edge and haul yourself out. You would need to be close to a ladder or something you could grab onto to climb out. You can have a hard time getting out if you aren't close to a ladder. Yeah. Certain sections of the canal, particularly where it looks like it goes into tunnels and under the roads, they do have handrails that run parallel to the canal along the walkways. But from what I could tell, most of these parts don't have anything. They're just wide open. 
I did see a police interview that one of the main concerns is people walking over the canal gates. And these are very narrow ledges that run over the canal diagonally. The idea that someone would walk over these at night in the dark, because we're talking about a tunnel here, there's no natural light from the moon or from the neighbouring shops or pubs. They are possibly drunk. I can easily see someone losing their step and slipping into the canal. And like you said, there's not a lot of light at night. And some of these canals are badly lit, especially those in Manchester, because the city was built over the canals. Many have sections that are effectively underground. This could cut two ways, I suppose. One thought is you wouldn't be able to see someone as they rushed out to push you into the canal, so you wouldn't be able to protect yourself. The other way to look at it, like you said, is with this poor lighting or no lighting or and no rails. And there are very few markers telling you how close you are to the edge. You could accidentally fall in at night, particularly if you're drunk, and it would be a lot harder to get out if you were drunk. I agree. I can see how people may stumble in at a higher rate than somewhere like a body of water that is fenced off and where there's some decent lighting. There does appear to be some natural risk getting around this canal system and staying safe at the best of times. One of the problems not having a complete list of potential victims is how many of them are truly young college-age guys on the way home after a night out and how many are actually older men or maybe homeless men or even men who are engaged in not-so-legal activities. I mean, it's a dark night in the city. How many of these 60 to 90-plus people were simply a robbery gone wrong? Surely there's a percentage where an actual crime happened. I'm not sure on the whole serial killer theory yet, but maybe a mugging or an argument that goes wrong, because when alcohol is involved, sometimes tempers do flare up. But I guess the question that flows on from this is, are these separate isolated incidents, one person or possibly a gang of people that are killing these people? Let's have a look at three of the people who attributed to the pusher, They are the main three quote-unquote victims that are mentioned. So we'll go through their stories and see what we think. On April 17, 2004, and yes, 2004, I know we said most articles put the pusher at starting at 2008, but David Plunkett is mentioned a lot as one of the alleged victims. So we're going to go ahead and include him, even though his death is four years before the window opens. So, on April 17, 2004, 21-year-old student David Plunkett was out with his friend Michael. They'd been to a concert at the Daytona Racetrack in Trafford Park, and about 20 past 1 in the morning, Michael called David's parents looking for him. They had gotten separated while they were out, and Michael didn't know where he was. Now, David's parents told Michael, not to worry, they'll figure it out, they'll find him. So they called David's cell phone which I'm guessing Michael didn't have the number. I don't know why Michael didn't call it. But anyway, okay, back to the story. They called his cell phone, and it took three tries to get an answer. And the phone did pick up, but there was no response from the other side of the call at first. Then they report hearing a terrible shriek that they felt was consistent with David's voice. Yes. They call 999, which is the UK version of 911, on another phone, and they put both phones together so that the dispatcher at 999 could try to talk to David and figure out what's going on and get help. 
but David's phone went dead. So if they weren't alarmed enough already, they were more so now. What's going on? What was that scream about? Where's their son? But knowing that they weren't really communicating with him, it wasn't like they had a conversation or anything like that. Is it possible that his phone just automatically answered their phone call while it was in his pocket, kind of like a reverse butt dial, if that makes sense? You would assume he would have called out or yelled out when he hit the cold water when he fell in, but they don't mention hearing anything, no splash, nothing unusual. You would figure a person falling into some cold water, there should have been a clear splash at the very least. I mean, yes, there is a chance they could have missed a quick splash, but you would imagine there'd be some sort of struggling going on. Wouldn't you hear the water thrashing about? I don't know. Right, because all they heard was the shriek of the 999 dispatcher apparently didn't hear anything else. Nothing else has been reported that was heard over that phone call. I mean, back in my younger days when I used to go out drinking with my friends, we used to just run down the street shrieking for no reason. It didn't mean that I was being attacked or anything. Right. Two weeks after David went missing, his body was found less than a mile from where he was last seen in the Manchester Ship Canal. An inquest concluded that he had accidentally drowned and that alcohol was a factor in his death. On December 15, 2010, 21-year-old trainee teacher Nathan Tomlinson went out with his work colleagues for a work Christmas party. They had visited a few different pubs in Manchester that night and they ended up at the Mitre Bar. At about 10.30, he said goodbye to his friends and he left. He told them he was going home. Nathan's mother, Tina, when she realised he hadn't come home the night before, she calls his cell phone, but it doesn't even ring. It goes straight to voicemail. Which makes me think his phone could have been switched off or maybe it ran out of batteries. At the time of Nathan's disappearance, police released CCTV footage of a man, supposedly Nathan. Something interesting was that although Nathan told his friends he was going straight home, if this was Nathan, he walks in the opposite direction. He walks two miles in just 22 minutes. So now I have all these questions going through my head. Where was he going? Was he lost? Had he met someone and was going to meet them? Even though he promised his mum he wasn't going to get drunk, he did send her a text saying he wasn't going to drink too much. But did he? I mean, he wouldn't be the first person living at home who had lied to his mum about getting drunk and then drinking too much. Maybe he thought the cold air on the walk home would sober him up. And then he took a wrong turn and got lost. On February 10, 2011, so eight weeks after he went missing, Nathan's body was found at the... No. On February 10, 2011, so eight weeks after he went missing, Nathan's body was found on the River Irwell. Investigators weren't able to say for sure if his death was part of a crime or due to an accident. However, interestingly, when he was found, there was no sign of Nathan's wallet, passport or phone, but he still had his keys and a pack of cigarettes. Now, in most of these cases, the coroner actually couldn't come up with the cause of death. I think it was something like 28 to 30 of these drownings. There wasn't a clear reason as to why they died. So that leaves a big question mark for me. 
where have people been able to fit a lot of these cases into a serial killer theory? I guess without being able to look into these cases individually, it's very hard to say for certain what's going on here. And is there truly a trend that could suggest a possible serial killer? So the third and last victim, in quotes, we don't know, that we're going to talk about today This occurred on New Year's Eve of 2012, and a 19-year-old student named Sovik Pal, who was from India, disappeared after a night at the Warehouse Project nightclub in Trafford. Sovik had never been to a nightclub before. He had started university in the UK. He hadn't consumed alcohol. He didn't take drugs. But hours before heading out to celebrate New Year's Eve that night, he and his friends had been drinking, and they had taken some ecstasy. Before they left, Suvik was researching online how to conceal drugs in his clothes so the club's sniffer dogs couldn't detect them. And then at some stage during the night, Suvik became separated from his friends, and then he was thrown out of a club for charging at one of the security guards in an attempt to go the wrong way in a one-way section of the nightclub. Around 11 p.m., CCT footage shows Suvik leaving the club with a man And that man has never been identified. Not long after that, another camera recorded footage of two people. One is believed to be Sovic going down an embankment to the canal. And then it appears they try to climb a fence into the water. 22 days after he was reported missing, the police pulled his body from the Bridgewater Canal, which is about 50 feet away from the warehouse project nightclub that he was at. The post-mortem examination showed no injuries and the cause of death was ruled as a drowning. It's difficult with the location part, though, because Sovic was 22 days from disappearance to discovery. Nathan was eight weeks and David was two weeks. Do we really know where they actually drowned? There's a lot of information that's missing here and... It makes it difficult to really evaluate this, and it's one of the reasons why the police who have all of these records would make me lean towards their analysis of them because we just have bits and pieces that were able to be grabbed from the media. I think one of the big things that is important to understand is just because you find a body in one location, it doesn't necessarily mean that is where what happened to them actually happened. I think in only one case that we have talked about someone who has or possibly has drowned in water, there's only been one case I can think of, that's the Alison Baden-Clay case, is the site where they were left the same as where they were found. And that's most likely because she wasn't actually in the water but beside it. I think in the majority of cases, as you said, Charlie, you don't get a clear indicator like that. So finding bodies in one location, it's not necessarily the actual crime scene, which makes it very difficult to process. I guess there's something that could be said about water that could possibly wash away evidence. There is some evidence that couldn't be washed away, like fingerprints or fibre evidence. Even some blood evidence could remain on the body in the water. But other certain types of trace DNA can be washed off. But mainly what I'm talking about here is solid physical items that can be separated from the body. Like, as I said with Nathan, his jacket was missing, his wallet was missing. But in this case, the detective looking into it, I think he makes a great point that 
he said that he could have had all his missing belongings in his jacket. And as he was in the water, his jacket might have come off him and he was separated from it at some point. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a robbery or murder situation. It's weird because a lot of people will look at the location that a body is found and for one reason or another, there is an assumption that something happened in that area. But when you find a body two weeks, three weeks, and then eight weeks later in the water, it could have come from many miles away. It could have come from a completely different part of the city. I'm not saying that this is what happened in these specific cases, but I think it should be at least considered. So when we're talking about whether this is the work of a serial killer or a series of unrelated accidental deaths, is to maybe compare it with a similar high number of drownings around the same period. Because Manchester isn't unique in a large number of people drowning in a small period of time. In Bath in the UK, which is about a three and a half hour drive from Manchester, there has been a string of drownings in River Avon. For the period of seven years since 2009, nine people have been found drowned. And for their part, authorities have done all they could to stop the drownings happening in the past few years. They've put up fences. They've done media campaigns about not going swimming in the river when you're drinking. And they've put up warning signs. However, the drownings keep happening. And in this case, there is an extensive list of drowning victims. And it seems the majority of them have been ruled accidental. And it's the same situation in Amsterdam. There were 51 cases of drownings from 2010 to 2013 in the canals, which is a higher number than what we're seeing in Manchester. And only one of these were due to crime. The other 50 drownings were ruled accidents. The vast majority of them involved men, like in Manchester, and most of those were drunk and they fell in while relieving themselves. Well, I think something that's worth looking at are the statistics in drowning cases. Because when you're looking at something like this, the statistics are important. Yes, 60 to 85 people drowning in the same area does sound high. And it's also been reported that it's a spike in drowning deaths. Well, we'll only know if it's a lot of deaths for the population size and if it's a spike if we look at the statistics. And if this is high... And if it is a spike, it does put a check in the box for a serial killer because it'll show us that something changed to cause this increase. Now, it can't tell us what the change was, so it's not definitely a serial killer. But, you know, we'd have to look at other factors, but this would get us on the road. Now, according to the World Health Organization, drowning is the third leading cause of accidental death in the world. So accidental drownings are not exactly rare. In the UK in 2015, 321 people drowned with a population size of 64.1 million people. Now, these include swimming pool drownings, open sea, as well as children, whereas Manchester victims were grown adults in public waterways. So obviously I'm working with limited and maybe even some flawed data. So you can reject my PhD application over that. That's fine. But (laughs) for the purposes of getting a rough idea... If you're more likely to drown in the Manchester Canal system than in the whole of UK, it's going to have to be enough. Without getting into all the boring math, I took the eight-year period believe the pusher was active. I gave the more generous 85 victims, and I used the population from the greater Manchester area. 
a whole bunch of math happened, and with the help of a calculator, I discovered you are actually no more likely to drown in the Manchester canals than you are in the whole of the UK. There are some factors here that would actually make me think Manchester would possibly be higher than other parts in the UK. These victims are all men. 70 to 80 percent of drowning fatalities are men, and this is usually attributed to riskier behaviors like swimming alone and mixing alcohol with swimming. And second, in the greater Manchester area, we've got miles and miles and miles of canals. So this is a lot of access to water. It's not just access to a large amount of water. This is a lot of access to waterfronts, a lot of space you can fall into, and a lot of it without safety rails. So let's add in the bars and the nightclubs to an area with a lot of waterfront, poor lighting, and it stopped seeming so crazy to chalk a lot of these up to accidents. To the first point, it's not really a lot of deaths in that area, even though it sounds like it is. And I think, like Allie has said, calling it Manchester and that the deaths happened in Manchester makes you think of a much smaller area than we really are talking about. Now to the second point of is this an uptick in drowning deaths, first, I found in my research that actually all drowning deaths in the UK are on the up for whatever reason. I'll blame global warming. But the <laughs> the second point really is that the data before the tabloids broke the story, I don't have it. Allie doesn't have it. You can't access it. No, it's you, you when you Google you can't there's nothing there. Right. The Greater Manchester Police probably keep the data of drowning deaths per year, but they don't put it on the internet. If we were an investigative podcast, we spent six to twelve months on a story, you know I would have put in a FOIA request, but we're not. So it doesn't appear that the drownings in the greater Manchester area is greater than anywhere else relative to the population, but we can't say yes or no that this is a spike. I did come across a great map online, and I can share it on the Facebook group if anyone is interested, but it's a map comparing pubs near the canals in Manchester against those in Birmingham, which is about a two-hour drive away from Manchester. But in Manchester, there is significantly more pubs along the front of the canal. They literally empty out with the canal right in front of them. They have to then walk along the canal to get to a street where they can get a taxi or bus. Where in Birmingham, the pubs don't do this and you can go the whole night without even seeing a canal, let alone falling in or getting pushed into one. I think something else that can be contributed to the high death toll in the Manchester canals, if we're comparing it to the other towns in England, is the high population due to the nightlife mixed with the majority being college students. It is a big college town. And then there is a high number of pubs in Manchester. So when you have a bunch of college students who we all know, they're more likely to drink and they may not be locals. So they may not know the area as well as locals do. So it could result in someone accidentally falling into the water because the time frame we are talking about is pre-fences here. And going back to the accidental drownings, I can think of a whole bunch of scenarios where someone drinking might have an accident. Maybe they weren't paying attention. They could be looking at their cell phone and then they stumble. Or maybe they are sick, so they go to the edge of the canal to throw up and then they fall in. 
or maybe, I mean, drinking makes you want to pee. So maybe they went to relieve themselves and they lost their balance. There are a whole heap of reasons why someone might accidentally fall in, especially if they are otherwise impaired. Something else that isn't generally brought up in this case, and the Smolly Face murders case for that matter, is that there is a good possibility that some of these drownings could be related to suicide. There is a homeless community around the canals, and there are a sizable amount of older gentlemen who have been found drowned. The fact that this hasn't been widely publicised, it is generally the young 20-something men that are featured in the media. A lot of these men are found after they were last seen drinking. Alcohol can cause certain people who are in a depressive state to act impulsively and maybe do something they maybe wouldn't have done otherwise. And the mere fact the police have already ruled some of these drownings as suicide I mean, you could argue the fact that they hadn't found any suicide notes. But the fact is, with the majority of suicides, you aren't going to find a suicide note. I also read that canals aren't a popular suicide spot. But again, if you are drinking and not thinking clearly, the canals are unfortunately right there. I think it would be naive for anyone to think that at least some of these 60 to 90 drownings aren't the result of suicide. The Detective Inspector Marsh, who we mentioned earlier, did mention that were specific instances where people were deliberately pushed into the water as part of a robbery. And there's been at least one arrest or questioning into that exact scenario. The robbery angle does make sense. So I feel like we're kind of talking the accident makes sense. The suicide makes sense. The robbery mugging makes sense. So maybe there isn't one answer to all of these drownings. And the robbery angle could have gone down two ways. One, you grab for the wallet or cell phone you're stealing and the person struggles to hold on to the item. You shove them away or there's the tug of war and you're just a little too close to the canal and they go in and you run. The other scenario, if you're one of our criminal masterminds here, you grab the wallet or cell phone and then you push the person on purpose. They can't chase after you. They can't even really, they're not even going to really yell out complaining about the robbery because they're too busy trying to get out of the water and you're long gone before they say, hey, I've been robbed. Let's say it's night and you push someone who's drunk or you push in an area where the water level is low and the person can't climb out. Murder wasn't the goal, but it is what happened. Now, something that I think of when I think of the UK and sorry to all our gorgeous UK friends but I automatically think of cold weather. So I was interested in the temperature of the water. Now I could only find the inland water temperatures and I'm not sure if the canals are counted in that, but I guess it's helpful anyway in knowing what we're dealing with. And I also couldn't find anything specifically relating to Manchester, so please take this information in that it's not going to be 100% correct. However, the range of inland water temperatures go from a low in winter of 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 5 degrees Celsius, to a high of 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 25 degrees Celsius. And that becomes important when you're considering the possibility of people accidentally falling in or even being pushed in, that they could develop hypothermia. The problem I have when looking into this case is if you have someone who is a serial killer and their MO is that they're going to push people into water, what is the likelihood that their victim is actually going to die? 
So let's just say I push 100 people into the water. Maybe I can expect, say, 2 out of 10 isn't going to make it. They might not be able to swim or what have you. But then that's 20 victims I have. But that's 80 people that survive. There would be a high percentage of people that would get out of the water, be able to call the police and say, hey, Ali just pushed me into the water and tried to kill me. It doesn't make the most effective serial killer that is going to not get caught after 10 years. If you consider other aspects in this case and you really have to figure out how I would use that mechanism to kill people, I think hypothermia would be that mechanism. If we are saying that these canals are cold enough, hypothermia can set in rather quickly. Just some information on hypothermia that might be interesting to know that we got from the Mayo Clinic is that our bodies are incredible at regulating our temperature. Our normal body temperature may move up and down a bit, but it stays relatively the same. So just think about how sick you feel when your body temp is up to 102, 103 degrees. Now take that and reverse it. Drop it down three and a half, four degrees. Hypothermia is when your core body temperature drops below 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. Mild hypothermia involves shivering and some mental confusion. And this is made worse with alcohol. The dilated blood vessels that make you feel warm when you drink actually are making you lose heat faster. You feel warm, but you're not actually retaining heat. So if these people are being pushed in, they could hit mild hypothermia, which includes mental confusion, pretty quickly if they've been drinking. Now, moderate hypothermia, the shivering actually stops, but the confusion increases. And then when you get to extreme hypothermia, we start seeing those behaviors we talked about in our Terra Calico episode, like terminal burrowing and paradoxical undressing. And now paradoxical undressing specifically is when the person starts removing their clothes in response to the hypothermia. The reason this happens is that before the person hits this point, the body contracts the blood vessels in an attempt not to lose heat. It's called vasoconstriction. But the body can't do that forever, and it eventually tires out, and it releases it, and the blood flows back through the body, causing basically a hot flash. So the person who is freezing to death shortly before they lose consciousness may actually feel like they're burning up because of this. Anyone out there who has Raynaud syndrome or knows somebody who does, this is what it feels like to them because it's the same basic mechanism that happens to them when their hands are exposed to the cold only through the full body. So this idea that somebody was found, their body was found in the water and their jacket with stuff in their pockets probably was missing may be part of this paradoxical undressing. Now what all that tells me that as soon as hypothermia sets in, you might lose your sense of direction, your logic might not work the way it should. If you are in the part of the canals where there is no ladder to get out of, you might have trouble trying to get to some place where you can pull yourself out. To know that mental confusion is part of such an early onset of hypothermia, it might explain why in a slip and fall type situation at least, why some people might not be able to get themselves back out of the water quickly and then they have to deal with more severe symptoms. So I do think there is a possibility that if someone was pushed into the water, maybe you could use this as a method in your serial killer bag of tricks. But I don't think it's a reliable method. 
In the summer months when it's not so cold, most of your victims would have significant time and ability to get out of the water before hypothermia sets in. So I think if that was the case, we would hear about something from at least one survivor, that someone was going around and pushing people into the water. But I haven't seen that suggested anywhere whatsoever. And no one has been reported being found with any significant injuries. No. So if I was a serial killer and drowning people in the canal was my goal, pushing them in would not be sufficient. Hitting them with something so that they fell in unconscious or holding them under, just pushing them in, you would have, like you said, most of the people surviving and reporting to the police that somebody's pushing people into the water. Exactly, because if you're standing there holding someone's head under the water, people are walking past. As I said, it's a busy area. People are going to see you. Now, going back to Thomas Sheridan's theory, Sheridan is the author and filmmaker I talked about early on. Gay men being targeted has been a theory that's really taken hold. But the truth is there isn't anything here to suggest this particular victimology. Only a small percentage of the victims were in, near, or around Canal Street, where Sheridan felt they were being targeted from. The Channel 4 documentary debunks this a bit further by talking to the victims' family and friends. These men weren't all from a single demographic, and it wouldn't be accurate at all to include sexual orientation into the victimology because it's not a unifying factor. But to continue with the victimology... You mentioned before, Ali, that the problem is that even the mainstream media articles reporting on this aren't providing a really straightforward list that shows us any of these potential trends. Yes, they were all men. That's about it. And we already know men are more likely to drown than women, so that doesn't tell us much. There is an interactive map online that showed quite a few college-age men as I was clicking through it. But as I kept clicking, I noticed there were nearly as many men in their 40s through 60s. And even race isn't a consistent factor. The greater Manchester area is 88% white, but at least one of the victims was a minority. Is this really a trend of young men or gay men being targeted? I'm just not finding the victimology or the case for this being the work of a single serial killer really that compelling enough to hang my hat on. It's an interesting theory, But there are additional theories that fit better. I think that's the problem here. This case is quite different to the smiley face murder theory in that for the smiley face murder theory, I can suspend disbelief and understand why people might think those drownings are related to a serial killer or gang of serial killers. You have a bunch of similar aged men in similar situations in a similar location. Here though, While you're only hearing in the media about the young college-aged men, really we are seeing people, as you said, Charlie, all the way up to their 70s. Based on that, I'm really having trouble seeing that there's a potential serial killer out there legitimately pushing all these people into the canal. I agree that there's just not enough information out there to support it. The MOs of the crimes are difficult to know because... We just don't know enough details about it. The conclusion I've drawn from this is that we have a series of drownings and the unifying factor is that they happened in the canals. You live on the coast of Australia. 
So most of the drownings in your area probably happen off the eastern coast of Australia. Exactly. But they're all different reasons. There's nothing here that, I mean, maybe suicide, but I mean, it's not a really great suicide method, but maybe people are committing suicide this way. But accidental drowning, the result of being shoved during a robbery or a mugging, maybe a fight breaking out. I think there could be multiple reasons that this is happening. I don't think it's the work of a serial killer, though. I agree. I think the answer is there isn't just one answer. Exactly. I think that is about it, unless you have anything more to add. Nope, I think I'm good. Please be sure to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or any of your other favourite podcast apps. You can also listen to all our episodes as well as read our show notes, read and listen to some short articles on our website, that's insightpod.com. We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod2 if you wish to tweet Charlie and I'm on Instagram at InsightPod. We are on Facebook, like the page and follow the group. Our group is just amazing, so please be sure to join us over there. If you ask my husband, I'm on there far too much. Please email your show suggestions and general comments and ideas to insightfulpod at gmail.com. And if you like the show and wish to donate, we are on Patreon. All donations go toward making the show bigger and better. And we currently have a very cool premium episode for patrons. The current episode is on the mysterious notes of Ricky McCormack. We also have a PayPal account for a one-off donation Links to PayPal and Patreon are on our websites. So some shout outs to our amazing Patreons this week goes to Lizzie, Jan, Stacey G and Alison W. Thank you so much. And thank you to Super Dubstar, Erica from the Apex and the Abyss podcast, Hot Doggy 90 and Pam Hammer for your five star reviews. It is appreciated so much. So thank you for everything and we'll see you next week. Bye.